Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger, a big warg to all of you Spaceburgers out there. And a reminder that the uh, Space Cave can be found on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as thespacecave.com, where there's also a link to the Patreon if you want to support the show on a monthly basis to help contribute to uh, web hosting fees and beer and music, etc., etc. That's always helpful. There's also a link to an email there, pings at thespacecave.com, if you have suggestions for beer or guests or music or anything else. Uh, I think that's about it. You can also purchase um, screen-printed things, uh, items, paraphernalia. I think they're totes, t-shirts, posters, things like that if you want to have a little space cave swag out there in the world. Okay, let's get into our chat. This is the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. They also have a new book out of the same title. We talk a bunch about that over the phone. Enjoy. Here's my chat with Dr. Stephen Novella. Hello. Hey, Dr. Novella. How are you doing? Sorry, it wasn't ringing for some some reason. Oh, no problem. Yeah, the myriad problems with Skype, so I'm glad we're we're actually communicating. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's it's forced me to update <laughs> to the to the new one, which I put off as long as I possibly could. Did you Windows screwed it up? Oh, yeah, I have uh I have mixed results. Sometimes it's really uh, steady. Other times it'll have these weird lags or drops or things. But um, so far it sounds good on my end. Yeah, it sounds fine. Just the interface is shit. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for for setting up the interview. Sorry about the two missed uh, attempts. (laughs) (laughs) No, no problem. um, Yeah, we had a a time flub, I guess, on uh, Jordan had a different time than I did. So we... Oh, okay. Our wires were crossed there, but no problem. Glad we uh, got to reschedule it. And um, I've I've uh, I've been I've been running through and thinking of all the different ways that I'm skeptical of things, or times where like I'm inaccurate, or so I think the the book is helpful. Just jumping around in it, the the different ways that that people go about and or don't go about critically thinking. I was on a podcast recently where I I felt like my girlfriend is always a really good source. And so I never thought to double check. And, I, and, and it was, she told me one of these stories that turned out to be an urban legend. But the way she told it was very like, I, I could have sworn she was saying it was about a friend of hers that she knew. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the story about a snake that, that lays in bed next to a person. And then she takes it to the vet. And the vet's like, you got to get rid of the snake. It's sizing you up to eat you. And uh, I, I told that on a podcast. And people were like, that story is inaccurate. And then I felt like a real heel. Yeah, yeah. You have to you, know, you have to vet everything, every single thing. Yeah. Does it get? Um, ex- I mean, I still like the idea though of the what ifs, and and I think that um, sometimes maybe those can be hard to reconcile with each other. You know, that I'm not believing it until I physically see every amount of data that tells me this in fact happened. Or do you still leave open a little bit of a window there? Well, I just got to slot it correctly. Like if there's something that's interesting but speculative, you just have to say, this is speculative. There's really no, you just have to call it like you see it in terms of how much evidence there is to to back it up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you don't have to rule out things that can't be ruled out either. Yeah. 
do you I, I liked your so in the introduction your kind of you know your background and and Spock uh, with the um, in search of and then and then Catholicism growing up with that I, I the amount of comedians that I've come across and I feel like comedians are typically very good critical thinkers in that they have to kind of recognize a lot of the the BS that's kind of taken as the norm and at least for me a lot of the comedy that i like is people kind of pointing out like this is ridiculous why are a bunch of adults believing in this but i was curious like how the transition really started to emerge for you from that you know from these dogmas into sort of like well i'm i'm switching over to this other side that makes more sense so definitely grew up in a, in a religious family. We all believed, you know, but we weren't super religious. It wasn't that big a part of our lives. It was just more in the background, but we believed, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, you know, all believed in, in Catholicism and uh, Christianity. Um, and then it, there wasn't really any one moment. It just kind of faded away over years. And there were some, sort of stable points along the way. You know, it's like when I thought about it, I say, oh, I guess this is what I think now. And then I, I believed that for a couple of years and then it would shift, you know, it got progressively downgraded to the point where I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, I still like Christianity. You know, there's some good things in that, but I, I don't really can't b- believe any of the supernatural aspects of it. And then um, at some point I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist. That's just the way it is. Uh, and by then, I think, you know, most of the people in my peer group are sort of somewhere along that spectrum as well, mm-hmm. or we like to argue. So like, it wasn't like that. It wasn't a big deal. The only, uh, the only person really in my life that cared, you know, that I didn't believe anymore was my father. And for a while, like he actually refused to believe that I was an atheist. Um, he just said, you don't really believe that. But, but at some point he realized you know, I remember. I can't remember exactly what we were talking about. We were having some conversation where I was like strongly defending the philosophical position of agnosticism and atheism, and he and he like looked at me like surprised, like you're really an atheist. It's like, yeah, I've been telling you that for twenty years, Dad. <laughs> but I never felt like it was a problem. Like I didn't, and I never really had to like come out. It was just, it was a conversation. It was a conversation I was having with everybody around me the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know the the book that it seems to that it's it's really, I think when you um, read or hear that someone's like, oh, I'm I'm a skeptic, or I I just I I trust reason and data and and proof. Um, it, it can seem like that almost in a sense becomes a hobby, especially if someone like wrote a book about it, like, oh, that's all this person ever thinks about. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It's just that when things are presented to you, this is the way that you approach them now. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it is a way of life, and and I'm not just a self-identified skeptic. I'm a skeptical activist, so this is my hobby too. Mm-hmm. But it's really, you know, science education, science promotion, science communication, with a critical thinking angle. Sure. You know, and a lot of scientists do that. You know, if that's their inclination, they build, they make that part of their career. They do the science, and then they also do science communication, and scientific skepticism, which is the what you know the philosophy that we espouse is that it's it's really just science communication with you know uh, trying to have as much of an understanding as possible of critical thinking and the, this thing that we call neuropsychological humility you know the, this notion that um, there are lots of ways in which we deceive ourselves mm-hmm. and we're, you know we're trying to grapple with reality with the flawed you know meat brains that we have um, and 
trying to understand that as much as possible. And then also understanding the philosophical and logical underpinnings of science, which not all scientists do. So some scientists know how to do science really well. Some science communicators know how to communicate science really well, but they don't necessarily understand at a deep and thorough level the philosophical underpinnings of science and all the ways in which it can go wrong. And therefore, they don't don't really understand pseudoscience. They think that they do. They think that by understanding science, they understand pseudoscience by default, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have that's a separate set of knowledge and skills that you have to acquire, you know, on its own. And so that's why, for example, I think probably the most dramatic example of this, there is a long history of biologists, evolutionary biologists, getting their butts handed to them by creationists in debate because they think, oh, I understand evolution, so of course I could defend it in a debate, but they don't understand the pseudoscience of creationism, and therefore they don't know what to expect, and they don't know how to counter it, they don't know the levels of deception that are involved, and they get blindsided by it. Um, yeah. So that's, that, like, that's why I think it's really, really critical. You have to combine all of those things into one package. I was. Just, I think that a lot of times with uh, the debate back and forth with, like, say, the flat earthers, is that they mm-hmm. know their little areas that they pick at, and I've seen people that are, uh, you know, very knowledgeable, very familiar with the, the the spherical globe as we as we take it as fact, and uh, and find themselves going, uh, well, uh, and and I that part when people can kind of wedge in because in their mind i think they are also the skeptics they're the ones mm. refusing data refusing the proof and saying no, no 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 i'm even more skeptical than that right yeah they're deniers mm-hmm. but there's a continuum right from true believer at one end of the spectrum to healthy skepticism in the middle to denial at the other end of the spectrum but of course we use ourselves as the touchstone right we calibrate based upon our own position. So anyone who believes more than you do is a true believer, and anyone who believes less than you do is a denier. And you are the skeptic, right? You're (laughs) the person who can ask the questions and come to the right conclusion. Uh, So that's kind of, we all look at the world from that perspective. Mm -hmm. I I shouldn't say all, some people actually don't. Some people who who claim to be scientific look at it from that perspective. There are some other people who just reject the whole thing completely and say, we don't need science and logic and philosophy. I can go with intuition you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they just have operating in a completely different system. That's kind of a new age approach to, to knowledge, uh, where they just deny, you know, postmodernist denial of knowledge at all. You know, it's all subjective cultural narratives. So mm-hmm. there, there is, there is no truth. Uh, but those of us, those who say, okay, yeah, we're doing science. They, they, that's kind of the, the continuum where they're at. Um, but like the, the flat earthers are an extreme, you know, and, and therefore excellent example of, that far end of the denier continuum, you know, uh, they're 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 doing pseudo skepticism, just like pseudoscientists are doing pseudoscience, right? Mm-hmm. They may call it skepticism, but they're not doing it right. They're doing it so profoundly wrong that it really isn't skepticism. It's this other thing entirely called denial or denialism, which has a set of features, a set of characteristics that you can understand it as a phenomenon. Deni- denialism is a thing. 
there are those who try to, to deny the fact that denialism is a thing. They say, oh, you're just dismissing my skepticism out of hand. It's like, no, it's not out of hand, first of all. It's you know, very good reasons to reject your methods. Your methods are flawed. They are not valid. Could uh, I? That's what, what, what you were doing is not skepticism. It's denial. Do you think that we sometimes like you're saying like where you know you want to be in that healthy part in the middle where you're the skeptic and you're kind of open to interpretation of the new data that's presented to you while also maintaining eh, I'm a little skeptical until I know for sure are we always kind of maybe on the side of denial until this abundance point happens one thing I think of is um, in your field neuroscience the uh, the idea of plasticity I'm curious how you feel about that it seemed like even in spite of data, the, that community at large was saying, no, 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 this is, this is wrong. This is inaccurate. Like uh, a brain can't rewire itself or form new synapses things. Or if you have a stroke, you're done. And then sort of new data over time being presented like, well, maybe, maybe we're wrong on that. Do, mm-hmm. do we do that same sort of thing with I mean, the, the amount of uh, ghost sightings or UFO sightings or, or, you know, on and on where you go, I think we're all on the side of denialism more so. Um, I was, maybe you could explain that from, from you know, from the neuroscience yeah. point of view. So the answer is it depends and it's very context dependent. And the thing that it depends most on is plausibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, plausibility and just how important it is, how mundane, you know, is the claim. So, you know, I don't go around my everyday life, you know, denying or doubting every little mundane thing because you can't survive that way. You'd be completely, you know, you'd be (laughs) locked into analysis paralysis forever, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the examples I give, like if my wife comes home and there's a dent in her car and she says that she hit a deer, Okay, I'll accept that on the flimsy and circumstantial evidence that's presented to me. I have no reason to suspect that that story is not true. It, the, the, there's a dent in the car, you know, my wife, I don't, don't know. It's p- totally plausible. We have lots of deer in Connecticut. It's hard not to hit them sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? That would, be, that would probably be the beginning and end of my inquiry. You know, I'd ask my wife what happened. She'd tell me and that would be it. Now, my wife came home and said she had Bigfoot with the car. I'm going to have a lot more questions <laughs> and I'm going to be starting from a, a position that's much more towards the doubt and skepticism end of the spectrum. And I'm going to want to consider other alternative hypotheses and I'm going to need more evidence than a dent in the car. Yeah. And you know what I mean? So that, that baseline plausibility, you know, it is, uh, it plays a huge role, but then it's also like, what is the context? What are we talking about here? Again, if it's like, Someone is t- is telling me something that has absolutely no implications for anything. I'm not going to spend the time, you know, to doubt it. If we're talking about a scientific claim that is, that is important, like is global warming happening? You know, are we going to be making massive changes to our economy based upon this scientific conclusion that man-made, you know, industrial processes is warming the climate? The stakes are really high then. So if the stakes are high, then you need to make really, really sure what you're doing. Um, and then you you followed up with a risk versus benefit or return on investment type of analysis. So like with global warming, we could say, okay, the, the stakes are high here. What's the plausibility of the claim? You know, scientists think it's very plausible. You know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. We're releasing more of it. Why wouldn't it be warming the planet? It seems pretty plausible. Um, 
they're really only haggling over the climate sensitivity. They're really only haggling about how much, not if. Uh, and although there's a, you know, the, the people who are sophisticated global warming deniers argue that climate sensitivity is very low. Yeah, CO2 warms the environment, but so low we don't have to worry about it for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's where the level of the debate is. But that's how stakes are high. Plausibility is high. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely want to be very, very skeptical, consider all possibilities. Uh, and then we judge the evidence in a very critical way as best as we can. The scientists are telling us, if we look at all the data, you know, 95% chance that, you know, this is what's going to happen. Uh, they seem pretty sure about it. And then if we have to, if we have to act on that information, right, if we have to do something about it, then we make a risk versus benefit analysis. What, what happens if we don't make changes to our energy infrastructure and we're right or we're wrong? What happens if we do make changes? So, you know, are there things that we could do that will be a win-win no matter what happens? You know, there's lots of different ways you could approach it. Um, so these are all very, very specific things that you decide in context. But obviously, like as skeptics, as as career skeptics, you know, we deal with a lot of highly implausible claims. And so, of course, you know, we're st- going to start from a position of maximal doubt when someone says, hey, I saw a ghost or I hit Bigfoot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that is so implausible that the the burden of proof is just massive. And just historically, the probability that the claims are going to turn out to be true are vanishingly small. You know, most of the time, like if, if something sounds like really implausible and probably not true and the claim is very flimsy, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much every time in my experience, it's turned out not to be true. And so that's a pretty good default position for that reason, too. You, um, in the book, reference how... Um our memories aren't really something that we should ever lean on or trust. And I think there's probably a spectrum there. I, I think it, most people that went in, you know, had a psychology course where someone bursts into the classroom and they run over and they take something off a table and they leave. And then they start asking the students, like, did this person wear glasses? Do they have black hair or blonde hair? Did they have on and on? And pretty soon people start realizing like, no, no, I, I definitely saw a red shirt and, and, it, everyone's memory doesn't have the same recollection of what they saw. But then on the other side, there'd be people with, you know, photographic memories, iodetic sort of abilities to remember years and years ago, minutia that happened. And, and you could watch video of that and see like, Oh my gosh, they were, they were right on. So then is it up to us to judge our own memory and say like, I think I remember this pretty accurately. So there's been a ton of memory research, and I could tell you what the research shows. One is that everyone's memory is terrible, uh, pretty much. You know, there yes, there are some exceptions, and you'll know if you're one of these people, right? There are some <laughs> people who do have incredible memories of cer- in certain ways. First of all, there's many different types of memory. You can't talk about it as one thing. Some people have incredible uh, autobiographical memory. They remember like every day of their life. Other people have incredible memory for numbers. Uh, or or for facts or whatever. But as a general, unless you're one of these exceptional people, generally speaking, your memory is terrible. It, it's it's designed to be efficient and to remember the important things and to have a survival advantage, but not really to be accurate or stable. Um, we also know that the vividness of the memory and your confidence in the memory is absolutely no predictor of accuracy. So I don't care how confident you are in your memory or how vivid the memory is. That really does not predict 
whether or not it's accurate. Um, that's a so, weird thing to like exist with, right? Because then you yeah. you really get if you're the person going in and saying, "Hey, I saw Bigfoot or a UFO or a ghost or whatever," and you trust your memory, and then everyone else that you tell it to says you can't really trust your reality or your existence. What do you do that? You just kind of walk off and go, okay, well, I guess I didn't see what I think I saw. How do I even know that I've lived the life I think I have? Yeah. I mean, so you, you really can't be confident that you saw the thing you think you saw. And it's not just about memory. It's about perception as well. Our perception is also horrible. Perception and memory are constructed. It's an active constructive process of your brain. Your brain is basically telling you a story based loosely on the information that it's highly filtering and, you know, and, and altering, uh, and the story, you know, for a functional purpose, you know, to keep you alive, but again, not necessarily to give you an accurate recording of what happened. Um, and we're, we're also social creatures. We have lots, lots of, you know, emotional biases, et cetera. So our, our memories fuse and alter and we, they get contaminated and we update our memories all the time. It seems like the most important thing for our brain is that everything sort of fits nicely together. Mm-hmm. Not that it's accurate. So we'll just change details willy-nilly just to make it all fit together nicely and to tell the story that we want to, that we want to tell. That, that's the reality, documented many, many ways. And so you just have to accept that. That's the humility part, right, of, of the neuropsychological humility. That doesn't mean that all our memories are false. It just means you can't know. <laughs> um, so how do, how do you evaluate memories? Well, if something's important, write it down, right? That's why it's so important to, to document things because then it's, it's fixed in time. Uh, you know what I mean? The details or you have some kind of objective reference. Um, so we, we see, well, how well does obje- do objective facts, do, do objective things uh, validate or correspond with the memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in like a scientific context, everything is recorded in detail, right? We don't trust a scientist's memory for anything. Everything has to be really, really objectively recorded. Otherwise, it's not data, right? It's anecdote. That's why we don't base any conclusions on anecdote because memory is horrible. Um, so, it, uh, I, but I do think it's empowering also to to know that because if you don't if you don't recognize the nature of memory you're going to get into a lot of arguments that are kind of unresolvable and pointless which we all do anyway right i mean we argue with people about who said what when and you know what i mean like even you've probably been in an argument where right at the very end of the argument everyone has a completely different memory of the argument you just had <laughs> because everyone's perceiving it from a different point of view and they're remembering the bits that resonated with them or what you know they're incorporating into what they were thinking at the time that the argument was happening. We're all telling ourselves a different story of the argument as it's happening in real time. And at the end, our stories are all different. Um, and I bet you if you had, to, if you were running a secretly running a video camera recording the whole thing, no one's at memory would be completely accurate. Um, you may remember some details accurately and you might have missed other ones, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, but again, so knowing that is really, really helpful. It kind of helps you back off and say, well, yeah, no one could really trust their memory. So, no point in fighting about it. Let's just, you know, agree to move forward. I've had a thing that I tried to process all of these through and, and I don't think too much about it. It's not something that altered my life, but it was something that I was out in a, I was in Northern Minnesota with a friend of mine and his family. There was uh, no like drugs or alcohol involved. It was a family hangout. I was just visiting them and uh, the sky really big there. And 
uh, you can see satellites go by, and then you can see planes, like commercial jets, go by, and you get a, a difference between the speed at which they are and the proximity, how bright the light is. And then uh, at one point, this thing came by that was moving at a rate that was more satellite-like, but it was lower and brighter, like bigger in, but moving much faster than it seemed like a plane would. And I just sort of caught onto that and started watching it for a bit, and then it sort of like boosted off like a like a sci-fi movie and i was sort of startled by that and then it made an abrupt 90 degree turn and disappeared and i was freaked out i was looking around no one else had seen it except my friend his face was the same way like oh oh what the, what the? and rather than write it down we conferred with each other like you saw this 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 and we both had seen the exact same thing both of us very skeptical both like well it doesn't mean it's aliens. It doesn't. It just means it's something we don't know what that is. That's all. But it was kind of a cool thing to see. And I think we chalked it up to like, if our memories both played tricks on us, kind of still a cool thing to see. And if it was something else, we'll never really be able to know what it was. So mm-hmm. the end of the story. It's it's not something I tell people all the time. Like, this is amazing. It's not something that I. It, even if a million people heard me tell it and go, ah, you're lying. That didn't happen. I go, okay, I don't care. So the memories that we have that we take with us, you know, I guess um, it's difficult to totally, you know, move away from them or, or find that uh, disavow them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, that thing, that was the only thing I could think of as looking over your book, where I was like, oh, I mean, if someone told me this story, I would be the one going, uh huh. What, what were you smoking? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, obviously, there's lo- there's lots of possibilities. I have. No idea what that experience was because all I'm hearing is your current memory of it. Uh, but I could generate a, a differential diagnosis, right? And say, well, here are the possibilities. You know, one possibility is that you saw an alien spacecraft, right? And it's a sure. I don't think that's a high probability, mm-hmm. but fine. You know, that that could be inconsistent with what you describe. Uh, I would definitely want to know: Were you impaired in any way? Were you drunk, sleep deprived, whatever? I'll take your word. You know that you weren't. Let's say impaired in any way. Uh, but there's other uh, that, that would I would put low on the list as well, unless you know you said yeah we my buddies and I were drinking all night and then this happened you know <laughs> yeah yeah then then that becomes the number one thing on the list. But absent any uh, any reason to suspect that there was any impairment of whatever reason, okay fine. Um, so what's the more likely thing here? So first of all, you're making a lot of assumptions in your retelling of the story. So first of all, you know, you and your buddy discussing it, that's actually really bad things because we know that you will contaminate each other's memory. Um, you, you should have independently recorded what you remembered mm-hmm. before. And if you were trying to do this scientifically, right? Cause once you talk, you are now contaminated witnesses. Yeah. And the fact that your details align with each other is now meaningless. You can no longer corroborate each other's stories cause you basically just contaminated each other's memories. And we are very suggestible in that way. Like if you, you see something ambiguous, you're not sure what it was. The other person says, did you see this? And you're like, yeah, I did see that. Your memory immediately congeals onto what the person just suggested you saw. Mm-hmm. And and so it, your memory could have been altered in real time based upon that discussion. You know, you come to a consensus memory, but your memories were essentially altered. Um, but let's say you both thought you saw the same thing even. The other possibility is, so you said, it, you know, you were making statements about how high it was, how big it was, how bright it was. And I'd like to suggest that you have absolutely no idea because uh, our vision, it doesn't work that way, right? Our vision has to make assumptions about size, distance, and therefore speed. And 
it does that um, well enough for everyday things because you know why? Because your brain has a catalog of things in it. It knows how big an elephant is, right? It knows how big a car is. And so when it sees a car, it assumes, all right, that's a car. I'm making that match. I know this is how big they are generally. Therefore, I'll assume it's that big and therefore it's this distance away, mm-hmm. right? But now you see something you're not familiar with. There's no catalog in your brain. It's a light. It's something vague, ambiguous. Your brain doesn't really, and you're also it's against the sky. There's no objects for reference. So there's no reference. There's no catalog reference. Your brain has no idea how to assign size, distance, and speed to it. So it's just, it's almost random at that point, um, right? And, and so, you know, your assessment of how big it was or how far away it was, whatever, is really meaningless. In fact, it's so bad that could have been something three feet away from you. <laughs> Give Seriously. me some credit. Come on. No, I'm telling you this. There are many documented cases where people were thought they were looking at something big and very far away and they were looking at something teeny and very close up you know that like they're looking at a blade of grass drifting in the wind and they think it's a ship you know and it went on so whenever when someone says it made a 90 degree turn and zipped off at impossible speeds that almost always means you were looking at something small and very close to you and therefore you were judging speed orders of magnitude incorrectly, right? You were judging speed based upon the assumption that it was far away and big. Um, So this is a known phenomenon. And no, you cannot know. This is the humility part again. It's not about giving you credit. I know how brains work from all of the research on it. And absolutely, you could make even that profound an error under those circumstances. A light in the sky with no reference and no no objective catalog reference to judge it by. You cannot make any statements about it at all. So I would bet money if we had some way of ultimately resolving what it is, I would bet money that it was something small and close to you. That That's the easiest explanation of those details that you're reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that fits the best with known cases where people happened to then you know, see what it was. Like, for example, you know, there were two airline pilots who were sitting on the tarmac and they're like, oh, dude, do you see that thing over there? They both were looking at this really, really, really fast moving uh, aircraft in the distance. And then it traveled in front of the tree line. And once it did that, immediately they could see that it was like a stalk of wheat or something drifting on the wind. Ah. But they couldn't, they could not tell when they didn't have the tree line for reference right? As soon as it hit the tree line, zip, it just changed. It's an optical illusion, right? You've seen optical illusions. They freak you out. Mm-hmm. They freak you out because, you know, people are not aware of all the ways in which our this subconscious processing is making all of these decisions for us. So you can craft ambiguous stimuli that will trick your brain into reconstructing or constructing your perception in one way and then flipping to another way. And then you're like, oh my God, you know, look, it's, it, it's whatever. It, it totally flipped. It was going left and now it's going right, whatever. Um, um, but that's the same thing, right? Yeah. So your brain constructs what you think you see, and so it's not what you see. You weren't you. What you think you were seeing was just a creation of your brain based on lots of assumptions you're not even aware of. Do you do you think that um, maybe there's there's like um, so say you and I are both real big into Bigfoot or UFOs or or ghosts, and so we know the protocol. We know okay when this happens. 
uh, don't don't talk to each other. Let's go record it or let's write it down and then confer after that. So we're we're approaching it from kind of a, uh, a, a an analytical sort of skeptical yeah. perspective. But because we're so excited, but we want to find ghosts, that could also cloud or taint our. Oh, I think there's one, and then go and record something and, and confer with a friend. Ah, we didn't see the same thing, and on and on and on. Like the shows that the ghost hunting shows and so on that you want to see it or want to have that happen. Um, and then on the other side that it, to, sometimes to me, it always, it feels like, uh, so like in the beginning of your book, there's a, a Douglas Adams reference who I, I love the, the marriage of science, but also like this healthy imagination of, we don't really know what's out there. We don't really know the universe. We just know what's in front of us. And it, as far as we know, is this, uh, does that, does the feeling like, uh, I always reference sort of like from the Big Bang to everything we know in the fossil record that is dinosaurs and into mammals and us, et cetera, is kind of this clinical and dry sort of, there's not a lot of mythical or mystical things that have been involved in it. Are we operating kind of in the same way? Like the ghost hunters want to see this or they want to see Bigfoot. They want to know something else is out there. And we at our skeptical side not that it comes from fear, but just we also kind of want to operate on like we sort of know what it is and we know that's not a part of it. So, yeah, I think there's a few layers in there. Um, so, yeah, we all have biases. They're all things. I mean, again, psychologists have spent a lot of time exploring what those biases are. We want to believe things that we already believe. We want to believe things that are desirable, meaning they, they meet some emotional need. But we also want to be correct. There, we, there is a truth bias. You know, we will prefer things that are probably true. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do those things all compete with each other? And where do you put your priority? In a way, being a skeptic means that I prioritize my truth bias. You know, I really, really, really want my beliefs to be correct, to be valid. Mm -hmm. And more and, and I will consciously sort of downgrade the desirability and confirmation bias, right? So I always say I'm not a I'm not married to any conclusion. I will change any conclusion if necessary. Uh, and I will be especially skeptical of things that I want to believe. And I will follow a valid process as much as possible. And then also, I'm going to check with other people because I don't trust myself to do that perfectly well. So I'm going to say, hey, what do you guys think about this? This is what scientists do, right? They replicate. They, they present to each other at conferences and in the peer-reviewed literature. They try to disprove each other. They try to disprove themselves, you know. It's all a process of checking and cross-checking and, and rechecking. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's that's how we compensate for that. If you're just looking to confirm what you want to believe, that's pseudoscience. That's what pseudoscientists do. They operate in a bubble of their own beliefs. They, they're generally trying to confirm their beliefs. They don't really engage with people who are skeptical of their claims, mm -hmm. uh, right? So th that's, that's really the fundamental difference. And, you know, and, and there's also lots of details onto what are the, what, what is rigorous methodology, you know, we're touching on some of it, but it's like, oh, you need to have unambiguous definitions of terms. You need to figure out a way to objectively record your data. You need to test your hypothesis in such a way that it, it is capable, the data is capable of falsifying it. If you're not trying to falsify your hypothesis or it can't be falsified, then you're not doing science, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what are you, that's why I asked the ghost hunters or I, you know, challenge them whether you, directly or, in, or just publicly. So what would falsify your hypothesis? You know, tell me 
what's the alternative hypothesis? How does this evidence bear on that? They say, oh, look, we have ghost cold or whatever. We have, look, EM radiation. It's like, oh, well, why is that evidence of ghosts in particular? And what would the world look like if there were no ghosts? And how could I falsify your hypo- ghost hypothesis as the explanation for that? They never do anything like that at all, <laughs> ever. They're just anomaly hunting. Yeah. They're just like, oh, look, here's something weird over here. It's a ghost. You know, that, that's not science. That is not science. And therefore, it doesn't. Re- it, it's, that's what I call chasing their tail, right? They're just going around in circles with looking at, for anomalies, and they never get off first base, right? They never make any progress because they're not doing the actual process of science, of testing your beliefs in such a way that you can disprove them. Because science is really about the models that survive attempts at proving them incorrect, And of Mm -hmm. course, you only survive for now, right? You could always be disproved later. But some get survived, have survived for so long, and they're so good at predicting, you know, outcomes of of research and observations, and they're so internally consistent and rigorous and solid that, yeah, okay, we don't have to worry about this one ever being proven wrong, right? Like the world's a sphere; it's always going to be a sphere. Mm -hmm. We're never going to discover that it's a cube, you know, or whatever, or that it's flat tomorrow. There will be more and more nuances, you know, you know, in terms of exactly its shape, how it deviates from a perfect sphere, but it's basically a sphere, right? Mm -hmm. So we could say that about a lot of things. Evolution, yeah, we are here because of evolution. Evolution happened. That's not really in doubt anymore. We could, we could take that as a premise now. I did. Um, uh, I used to do a stand-up bit about, and I, I kind, on some level, I feel sort of like it. Not that it opened up the the gateway at all, but just that it did offer a bit of skepticism. And like I, the first time I saw Australopithecus, and and how few bone fragments were really there, and how like, oh, I'm operating under a little bit of faith in this. It makes sense to me. I trust it. I believe mm-hmm. it. But I also am, I am making these little jumps from this to this to this and saying like, yeah, but it makes so much sense. And, yeah. you know, do we all kind of do that? And, and, that, and that one's a lot more acceptable maybe than some of the other uh, faith jumps that people do. Yeah. So I think that gets to how science is communicated to the public because you and I don't know what the evidence is for Australopithecus because we're not experts. Mm-hmm. We know what the experts tell us the evidence is. And you may see, oh, here's Lucy, right? Here's the, here's the fossil. Right. Yep. Do, do you really know how they, how that came about? Like where, where they got it from and the methods of putting it together and, you know, how it was dated, if it, if it was dated and, you know, how they, they fill in the gaps when they piece this, how they do that, you know, what, and they, they're telling you that, yeah, this fits in here. But, you know, that comes from a lot of detailed analysis of like really minutia, nuances of anatomy and, and rigorous, you know, examinations and comparisons, et cetera, et cetera, that you have no idea about. You and I don't know. Even I'm an enthusiast. I know a lot as a layperson about human evolution and the fossil record, but I don't I get anywhere close to the level of like a published peer reviewed study. It gets really, really hyper technical very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't say, OK, you know, take a broad brushstroke and say, oh, yeah, here there's, you know, th- there's like there are some species, some fossil species that are based on one tooth. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. I, I get why they are saying that, but also I know from experience, you know, by following this for decades, that they really have no idea. 
you know, that <laughs> they don't know what this creature really looked like. They're making a lot of assumptions upon assumptions and speculations and extrapolations. They're saying, oh, this tooth is somewhere between these two species. So the creature is probably somewhere between these two species. But that's really vague. Um, you know what I mean? There could be some side branch, you know, yeah. that is very different in ways they have no way. So, and that's why every time we find a new specimen, we're filling in this puzzle. We're not just filling in and confirming our previous speculation. The scientists are like, oh, it's changing. It's changing the puzzle. You know, every time we find, it's like, oh, there's this, we have to draw the line slightly differently. And there's this new branch over here. And, you know, these connect up in a different way than we thought previously. Um, so it's good to know where, what the confidence level is of the current best conclusion of scientists and that's that doesn't always get communicated it's just oh scientists now believe this yeah okay but how confident are they of that so you have to ask that sort of deeper level question and when you do ask that question you get honest answers you know mostly from scientists but there's a range and so i also you know discovered over the course of my you know science communication career that you have to ask a bunch of scientists right you want to find out what's the consensus of scientific opinion and what are the scientists saying who don't believe what these guys are saying who who are coming up to a different conclusion why do they differ in opinion and you could go as deep down that rabbit hole as you want until you get to the point where you sort of exhaust your ability to understand the argument or you feel like okay i have a pretty good sense now of what the consensus of scientific opinion is not just what the conclusion is but how confident the conclusion is on what details and how likely that is to change and what evidence would change it you know mm -hmm. it's always a story science is a story that's unraveling and it's unfolding over time and we are somewhere along the arc of that story. We're not at a moment in time where, boom, this is the, now the truth. This is now the scientific fact. That's not the way it is. It's like we're somewhere along the course of an unfolding scientific story. And you have to know where you are on that course from first evidence and speculation to all right, this is pretty rock solid now. We could move on and um, assume that this is true. And for a lot of the stories, there's you know, especially ones where there's research being done and things, interesting things are being published, we're somewhere in the middle, you know, somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to convey that as well. But that's not how the mainstream media presents science. It really isn't. They mostly are like, whoa, scientists discovered this new awesome thing. This is now what they believe. You know, it's like, no, this is just the latest salvo in a long unfolding back and forth of multiple views. And within this, you know, total mess of uncertainty, this is just one more piece of the puzzle. It's not like, oh, they, they knew nothing. And now they now they understand that mystery solved or scientists <laughs> or bamboo or whatever are baffled. I always it's like, like always they, the, the, one of the, those few headlines is never accurately reflecting w the story that's unfolding. I always like when they they manage to sneak in a quote that is is the scientist saying like, we're we're so skeptical and we're going to retest it or, or make sure that you know confer with other people submit it for peer review. But uh, yeah, you're right. Like a lot of times that that little snippet doesn't make it in. People just read the article and go, ah, okay, it's this now. Right, exactly. And you have to read between the lines because sometimes you get those quotes are thrown in there uh, and, and, you, and you could tell, okay, the, the scientist here is being a lot more reserved than this headline implies. But, and then for me, like, you know, because I'm not just trying to understand science, I'm trying to communicate it. I go back to the original article. 
You know, you have to do that if you want to try to understand what's really said. And there are times where like I now I have a pretty good sense, like I'll be reading a press release or I'll be reading the mainstream coverage of a news item. And I'm like, hmm. They are not telling me what's really going on here. I actually can't reconstruct what the study actually showed from how it's being reported. And then I go back to, to the article and at least like read the abstract and the introduction or maybe the discussion at the end. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. That's what they discovered. Okay. I had no idea based on the press release, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you, yeah, you have to be able to do that in order to you know, reasonably report on on what's being said, but it, it is very sobering too, because you realize, okay, the most of the public is trying to understand this news item based upon this totally crappy press release <laughs> that, and sometimes it's like, it gets the, the, the bottom line wrong. Like that's the opposite of what the study showed, or they, they hit upon some little speculation at the end of the study and they run with that. Like well, that's think- actually... Not what the study was about, not what it showed. That's just the uh, the authors at the end saying, oh, and further research might find X. And the press is like, X, you know, that's what they're saying. Like, no, that's not what the study was about. <laughs> uh, I've, I have two questions or things along in following in that line of thinking. One, I'm curious if you like magic, if you ever go to a magic show. And two... Um, with, with things like you do, with you and, and Kara and the gang and your brothers with the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and, and shows ideally like this, where it's kind of a lay person's interaction with the science community to try, to try to spread that, try to get more people to have an ability to find out in a little bit more in-depth rather than just the articles that may be inaccurate or incomplete. And does it then start to seem like, uh, an, again, a divide shows up? depending on where you get your stuff. Like, oh, I only read this, or I'm into conservative Christian news, so I would never listen to that sort of podcast or read that sort of article, and the divide grows and grows. You know, how, how can we get it, ideally, where everyone is just saturated with all of the necessary info, and then they can make up their mind beyond that, as opposed to just isolating and like, I only get it from here. Yeah, so the, the first questions a lot easier because yeah i love magic and (laughs) actually there's a huge overlap between the magical community and the skeptical community Uh, most you said comedians are skeptics magicians even more so Hmm. because magicians their whole craft is based upon deception Mm -hmm. right it's based upon that neuropsychological humility it's like they know people are easy to deceive uh and in fact adults are easier to deceive than children and smart people are often easier to deceive than than people who are less educated, et cetera, because they're more predictable, mm-hmm. you know, and they process information in a certain way. And they're also maybe a little bit more arrogant, a little bit less humble. And that's the perfect, perfect mark for a magician. Of course, they're doing it in a benign way to entertain. Mm-hmm. And they also get annoyed when people use their craft not to entertain, <laughs> but right. to scam people, right? So a lot of like, you know, James, the amazing Randy made a career of exposing frauds who were using his you know, magic tricks that he knows how to do in order to defraud people. There's also a huge overlap between neuroscience, you know, I'm a neuroscientist and magic. Um, There's a great book called Slights of Mind, which is exactly about this, because magicians have essentially over centuries, really, through just trial and error, figured out how to fool the brain. They, they, They have a lot of practical knowledge of neuroscience. They may not understand the 
the uh, the brain regions, right? The the circuitry and all that stuff. Neuroscientists know that, but they know that yeah, this is how people look at things, and you could get them to look where you want them to look, or whatever, by doing this or doing that. People will miss this. They'll consistently look over there. And so the neuroscientists then are trying to to deconstruct, reverse engineer. Why does that magic trick work, right? Mm -hmm. The magicians only need to know that it works. They know that this technique works. The neuroscientists are trying to figure out why does it work because the brain processes information in this particular way, Mm -hmm. uh, for example. So very, very cool. And and, yeah, it's it's hard to be a practicing magician and sort of live every day with the knowledge of how easy it is to fool people (laughs) and not be skeptical. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, And then the second question is, well, how do we get people to consume a variety of sources of information from more objective sources and sort of get the information that they need and who the hell knows? I mean, that's tough. And it's also a a moving target, right? With social media and everything. I mean, if, even if I did have the answer today, it might be obsolete tomorrow. Um, so all I could do is just make that effort in my little corner of the world, right? So I'm trying to spread that as much of the good information on social media as possible. And, and also, again, we're not trying to, again, we don't try to tell people what to think or give them the answers. We're trying to model for people like how to think that, how, you know, what processes are, are valid and helpful. And one of the things we say all the time is don't trust any one source. Don't trust us. You have to find multiple sources. <laughs> you have to try to, you, there's a process you have to go through when you're evaluating any claim. You need to find out what are both sides saying? Why are they saying it? Who has the better case and why? You can't trust any individual source. Go back to primary sources. You know, don't take someone else's word for what that study said. You have to find out, you know, that the, what the study said. And then you, you not only want to find out what the authors say about their own study, you want to say about, you want to find out what their colleagues say about what their data showed. And is everything fitting together, you know? Um, and, you know, how, again, how much of an effort and how much time you put into that depends on how important it is, you know, what's the plausibility and what are the stakes, you know, for you. Yeah. The primary bias that you would have seeing something fantastical. Uh, I have a person close in my life who enjoys going to mediums, but having suffered losses and things like that, it's valuable to this person just to see the healing and the crying and all these things. To me, it seems like a snake oil thing. I've never gone, uh, but I have a friend who went, very skeptical, that we were kind of chuckling, you know, ah, you'll, you tell me, and then we'll, we can put this to rest. And she went and she was like, it was it was compelling. And that was weirdly frustrating to me, I think just from a preconceived bias. But I guess my question would be if whether, you know, obviously I don't think that there's any truth to it, but the person is accessing something that has value. Do you think that that people need those? I mean, do you think there's value in that, that ah, they go to the snake oil salesperson and they leave feeling better about a lost loved one or, or whatever that may be? So yeah, people have a spiritual dimension, right? That's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, you know, in our, in what we do, we don't try to disabuse people of their metaphysical spiritual beliefs that they hold for whatever reasons that they hold. We, you know, want to get people to think critically, to understand science for what it is, right? Mm-hmm. We, we also, we, do, we think it's a, a, a mistake, however, and there's a lot of risk to trying to understand the world, the, the empirical world, through 
faiths and stories and, and narratives and things like that because it doesn't work. You know, then you're just you're going to end up believing something that's not true. And you're also going to be very vulnerable. And I think that's what's going on here. Right. So faith healing is not this benign thing uh, where people go, they feel good and then, you know, they're happy and they go home because, you know, there are I have plenty of my own anecdotes and there's plenty of of uh, cases where you know people go to faith healers like for example someone very close to me somebody that i worked to was a believer went to a faith healer the next day they come back and say like as a oh yeah how do you explain this skeptic look they fixed my back pain and i said listen be very careful you know right now you got some endorphins going on there because you know of the whole show that was put on just don't hurt yourself. The next day she was crippled because she, you know, she really injured herself because she falsely believed she had been healed when she was just in a little bit of an endorphin high. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, directly risky. The other thing is, you know, you could watch these faith healing shows where people are throwing their medication on the stage, you know, like diabetics, <laughs> you know, people would, you know, asthmatics. I mean, what's the, what's the body count for people who like decided to go off their medication because they believed they were healed. Yeah. And then of course these people are targets. They're sending, you know, billions of dollars to, to, to faith. This is a massive industry. There's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so people are being ripped off for money. They are being, their health is being harmed either directly or because they're, you know, they're doing this instead of treating themselves. Uh, there's a lot of harm. There's a lot of downside to it. I think just to generic, and again, it's hard to estimate the full downstream negative effects of believing in magic that isn't real. Uh, I think that believing in, you know, the seeing the world the way it is, is extremely valuable and empowering. And I would not take that away from somebody. Uh, but, you know, having said that, if someone says, yeah, I believe in God, it's comforting, whatever, but I still believe in reality too. I'm like, fine, I don't care. I'm not going to talk, you know, try to make them say that they don't believe in God. But if people say, I believe in God and therefore I know the world is 6,000 years old and I don't ever have to get, go take medicine because Jesus will heal me or whatever. Yeah. It's like, okay, now you're crossing over a line. Now you think that you could actually understand and manipulate the physical world through your faith, not just have faith in the unknowable metaphysics that nobody could ever know really. Um, so it's a matter of just keeping things in their own corner, right? Keeping things separate. Uh, and you can get all of the positive aspect of spirituality without um, the downside of being a vulnerable mark and believing in pseudoscience. And I'd finally say, I'd also say that, you know, the scientific view of the universe can be very spiritual. It is, and it could meet all of those needs that we have. The, the universe is an immensely huge, ancient, you know, unfathomable and fascinating place. And we are part of it. And life itself, too, life, you know, the complexity of life, the complexity of our own brains, who we are, the human condition, you know, the human story that's unfolding on our life is a tiny part of this huge story that's unfolding in the universe. And there are there are so many massive questions about, like, are we the only intelligent life out there? Is there other life? Is it intelligent? Is it technological? What are they like? You know, how are they different from us? You know, there's a there's a lot of big questions that. Uh, is more than enough, right? And I think as, as a lot of skeptics have poetically said, I think Tim Minchin wrote a song about this. Isn't this life enough? Isn't all of the wonderful beauty and immense complexity and everything, why isn't that enough? Why do we have to invent magic to fill some void? You don't just, just look at the universe. That will fill your void for you. Mm-hmm. I like that. 
I think do you you know when trying to construct the puzzle, think more about it, or guess at maybe some some mis- dinosaurs into us, the big gap there. Um, do you do you let your mind wander and imagine bizarre scenarios, or do you just feel like eh, there's there's no reason for that until I find some evidence, then I'll maybe. Chew on, chew on it a little bit, but or do you just let yourself daydream and kind of eh, wonder if you know, maybe some gelatinous people were here for a while and left no fossils, anything like that? I mean, both of those are true in a way. So I'm a huge science fiction fan, you know, science fiction and fantasy. I tend to prefer hard science fiction, but uh, I think there's there is room for speculation and imagination and wonder and thinking about possibilities. But you just have to keep your fantasy separate from reality. And I also think a lot of people, like the people who believe in like conspiracies and aliens and flat earthers or whatever, a lot of the times I'm like, wow, this person just needs an active fantasy life. You know, <laughs> they need to to play video games or LARP or something that, because they, this is their entertainment. This is how they are meeting those needs. They're just confusing it with reality. Mm-hmm. But you can you can you can speculate about what's possible or even what's impossible, just what if, you know, or, you know, that's why they call it speculative fiction. It's awesome. Uh, it's, it's, it could be a serious, hard thought experiment or just a complete fantasy. Who cares? Just don't confuse it with reality. You know, keep your reality separate, right? That's it. You get the best of both worlds. But I think a lot of problems come from people, you know, getting their peanut butter and their chocolate, as it were, right? There's getting the fantasy and confusing it with reality. Yeah. Yeah, to me, all of this sounds like the appropriate way to approach everything. I think people that were listening that have uh, hard attachments to their spiritual side of things or to their just desires or whatever that might be, they would bristle just at the idea of of everything that you've said. And that is so bizarre to me. But I guess that's kind of the battle, uh, not just in the neuroscience field, but in the skeptics field, that's the battle you kind of have to face. People with their built-in, not just prejudices for their own uh, narrative of their life, but that they they just want it. That just like I just want I just want to think this. I want to believe this, and therefore I do, and therefore you are wrong. And so uh, I don't know. It's, well, that last bit is where you go too far, right? So if you're if there's an unfalsifiable hypothesis, you know, like if you think, oh, I think there's some being out there that we can never detect or that's beyond the laws of the universe, it's like okay, well that's an unfalsifiable hypothesis. Nobody could prove or disprove it. So any belief or disbelief in it is totally arbitrary. I could say I choose not to believe in it because there's no reason to believe in something and I choose not to believe in things arbitrarily. That's my philosophy. But I can't know scientifically that anything that's that cannot be falsified is does not exist. I don't know that there aren't invisible floating unicorns flying around, right? I mean, <laughs> you could, there, I think that all electricity works through fairies that fly around and deliver electrical current, you know, to wherever it goes. And it looks exactly as if there are no fairies, but I believe the fairies exist, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Good for you. But the, the, you can't take the extra step of saying, and therefore you're wrong. Right. And therefore I'm going to now pass, you know, uh, lobby for laws that, that, you know, put into place my faith, my belief system, that's the freedom of religion thing, right? That's the separation of church and state. That's why that's a good idea, because you don't know that you're right and that somebody else is wrong. If in order to say, we're going to build our civilization and our laws and our behavior, and I'm going to force other people to adhere to these beliefs, then the burden's on you to, to say why, you know, to, to prove that it's objectively, empirically 
the best answer, right? I'm not saying, yes, we need to move off of fossil fuel because that's my belief system and that's my faith. Mm -hmm. I'm saying we need to move off fossil fuels because there's a, this mountain of evidence which tells us it's a good idea. And then there's evidence that you can examine, that you can look at for yourself and see how compelling it is that can be objectively, you know, uh, verified in some way. Uh, but once you're saying this is this is my personal faith, then that's it. You can't make any other claims about it's objectively true, it's empirical. Those are two separate arenas. You can't mix those two things. Well, tell that to the current <laughs> form of government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve, I, good luck with the book, and thanks for – I know you have to get going pretty soon, so, but I could keep talking sure. forever. This is really fascinating. And oh, um, Thank you. Hopefully, if you're ever in L.A., we could, um, we could do it in person. I don't know if you drink beer, but I usually have some beer on the show. And uh, I don't like beer, unlike uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I do not like beer. That's okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, no problem. Well, I, I could, we could still we'll get a drink of something else. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Kara's out there. I think Kara is going to be on your show at some point. Yeah. And I will definitely let you know if, uh, next time that we are in L.A. We're, you know, we're, there's, there's a lot of uh, threads out there, of, like people who want us to go here or there and, and schedule events. Um, you know, we you, most of us still have day jobs, unfortunately. And this is like I have to take two weeks out of my schedule to do the book tour. So it doesn't leave a lot of room in my schedule for other things. But if we could or if we could carve out the time, we'd love to come over there. Cool. Well, and thanks for taking time to do something like write a book and do a podcast when you're busy. It's not like you're out uh, and not to trivialize anyone else's career, but someone who's maybe uh, delivering pizzas or something. It's not quite as big of a stretch for them to do a podcast as someone who's uh, a doctor of neuroscience. So thanks for thanks for doing all this stuff. My pleasure. It's a lot of work, but it's this is my labor of love. Cool. Well, Dr. Novella, author of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and host of the podcast of the same name. Check them out. Um, thanks, for, thanks for chatting, man, and good luck with the book tour. Thank you so much. Okay, see ya. Thanks. Well, I hope you liked it. I, um, I'll offer some thoughts on my, um, uh, more on my own take, I guess, on um, skepticism going forward uh, in the Patreon. Some rambling, maybe have extended chats with other guests as well in there so if you want to support the show that way and get access to bonus content that's the way to do it this the junk show is always the second sunday of every month in los angeles at the copper still and um might be getting back on the road doing some stand-up dates i'll keep you posted as far as that goes anyway get out there and have a great week thanks for listening to the show here's a song by alpaca called ease your gaze thanks for stopping by the space cave 